Wendy's two for six dollars lets you mix and match some of our best items, like <gasps> Dave Single with a ten-piece crispy nugs, medium strawberry lemonade with a spicy chicken sandwich, spicy chicken with a Dave Single, Dave Single with a strawberry lemonade, strawberry lemonade, strawberry lemonade. If you're into that, chicken Sam, crispy nugs, crispy nugs, strawberry lemonade, Dave's, Dave's nugs, nugs, Sam, Sam. Whew. Pick what you want at a price you want. <clears throat> Choose wisely. Choose Wendy's two for six. For a limited time, price of participation may vary at U.S. Wendy's. On the card only, single item at regular price. As the kids are heading off to We Believers and Belief Builders, I want to share with you how exciting the past three weeks uh, have been here at Mount Olivet. This is the third Sunday in a row that we've had the opportunity and the privilege to baptize uh, a child. Baptism is part of God naming and claiming us as beloved. And it's, believe it or not, sitting in meetings is not one of my favorite parts of this gig. It's doing things uh, like we just did with Abby. And so I don't know what you all are praying for or how you're praying for it, but if you could keep it up, uh, it would make uh, Sunday mornings a lot more exciting uh, for all of us. And a few weeks ago, about a month, I had the privilege of leading our confirmation class. The topic of discussion that I was assigned, I did not choose this, was, is the Bible true? And all I could think to myself was, thanks, Hannah. I know, it sounds like an easy topic for the second week of confirmation class. And for those of you who are perhaps new to Methodism or don't know what confirmation is, confirmation is an intentional year-long study, year-long being school year, of the Bible our holy scriptures, our traditions, and how uh, the divine interacts with us. And it's an opportunity at the end of this period of time for the students to confirm the vows that were made for them on their behalves at their baptism. Or perhaps for them to choose to be baptized themselves. Aside from baptizing babies, it's probably my second favorite thing that I get to be a part of here And what's neat about confirmation is it's the students choosing to be confirmed. It's not me choosing and saying they're ready or they're not. It's not them sitting in an interview with Pastor Ed or Pastor Jeff or Hannah and them deciding. It's up to the students to confirm the beliefs that they and the truths that they want to live their lives by. It can't happen through manipulating them by giving them false claims about Christianity and salvation. And it's not something that their parents can force them to do. So the prompt a few weeks ago was, is the Bible true? You know, the question that Hannah gave me last month was not much different from the question that Pilate left Jesus with in our reading this morning. What is truth? Jesus had just been handed over to the Roman authorities by the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Jesus had been found guilty of blasphemy. Blasphemy is speaking in a way that injures the reputation of God or a manner of speech uh, that holds contempt for God or a lack of reverence for the divine. This includes naming one's self as divine. Now, our confirmation class can tell you that one of the truths held by the majority of Christians around the world is that Jesus was 100% human, yet at the same time, 100% divine. Not a 50-50 split, 
100% each, fully human, fully divine. And a scene from John's Gospel, chapter 10, confirms the charge that was brought against Jesus. And when the religious leaders in chapter 10 try to arrest him, somehow Christ escapes their grip. Blasphemy is a serious offense. This offense offense is punishable by death, according to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. One who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. The whole congregation, all of you, shall stone this person to death. So if the law requires Jesus to be stoned to death, why on earth would the religious leaders of Jerusalem hand him over to the Romans? Why not deal with it themselves? Why bring Pilate into it? After all, two verses before our reading this morning, Pilate told the religious leaders to take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The answer to this question lies in the upcoming Passover festival. Killing Jesus would render the priests ritually unclean, and that would mean they couldn't take part in the Passover festival. So that leaves Pilate and Jesus together. Pilate having to figure out which questions to ask Christ to get the correct answers to find the truth that he needs to resolve the situation of a first century man who had committed no crime against the Roman Empire. He asks, are you the king of the Jews? What have you done? And what is truth? Last month, our confirmands began their time with me discovering the difference between truth and facts. There's a big difference between something you hold to be true and something that is a fact. It's nice outside. That may be true for some of you, but for me, as soon as it drops below 50 degrees, I'm not going to affirm your truth. Now, we can all agree that it's 49 degrees outside right now, and that's a fact that we can prove together, and we can agree upon that. We can measure it. Together we can prove truths, or prove facts, that is, but truths, they're much harder, because the truths that all of us hold dear depend on the traditions that we've been a part of. They depend upon the experience that we've had throughout our entire lives, and they depend upon the way that we reason all of those things together. The facts and the truths surrounding Christ's messiahship shaped the interactions that he had with the religious leaders and with Pilate. Fact, Israel was living under Roman occupation. This would have led to generations of decline and disappointment. And if we look back to the entirety of the history of Israel, we see generations of occupation, generations of exile, and generations of slavery. The fact is that Israel expected their Messiah to overthrow their occupiers and to restore the nation to the glory it had once held. Another fact, Jesus doesn't match this expectation that Israel held for its Messiah because the truth that Christ proclaimed was nonviolent. It was restorative and it was inclusive of all of the people 
that the religious leaders of Jerusalem had kept outside of the religious life of the community. Jesus' truth did not match the expectations of the religious leaders of the day. And because that truth didn't match their expectations, there was no way that Christ could be heralded as the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, King of the Jews. A truth for us this morning is that we struggle with the kingship of Jesus. Our struggle with kingship language is really general as well. As a nation, we threw off our monarchy in 1776, and we haven't looked back. And because of this fact, our truth as a nation means that kings are a thing of the past. Kings are something that all of us are weary of. So what then do we do with Jesus, the King of the Jews? If Jesus is to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that means that there can really only be one king. And that's problematic for Pilate again, because Pilate's truth holds that, Pilate, that Caesar is Lord. And the religious leaders in Jerusalem during this time affirmed as much when they handed Christ over to the Roman governor, saying, we have no king but the emperor. The Son of God, Emmanuel, God made flesh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords was standing right in front of them. And they missed it. God, fully divine, had taken on human flesh to the fullest and was standing directly in front of them, testifying to this new truth, and they could not see it because their tradition, their experience, their reasoning of those things had created a circumstance where they said that that truth wasn't the truth at all. Today is New Year's Eve for us in the church. It's the end of the liturgical season, year B. It's New Year's Eve, and next week we start a new year with the first week of Advent. Advent is usually a time of great preparation and anticipation as we await the birth of the infant Messiah. But the truth of this season is that the church is beginning a new year, awaiting the second coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Fleming Rutledge is a retired Episcopal priest, and truth be told, she's really the Beyonce of the Episcopal Church. And she points out that most of the hymns that we will be singing through Advent are written with an eschatological lens, meaning they're looking to the second coming of Christ. So while we read the hymns and we think because of the season and what's about to happen on the 25th that these songs, these hymns are about sweet baby Jesus in golden fleece diapers, the fact is that these hymns were written about the second coming of this king. The end of the church year is today. It's Christ the King Sunday, and we end the year by declaring that Christ is Lord. And as Stanley Hauerwas eloquently put it, everything else is something that I'm not allowed to say in church this morning. When we are baptized, named and claimed by our Creator, we proclaim Christ as our Savior, and we promise to serve Him as Lord. 
That was a bold profession to make 2,000 years ago, and it was a bold profession to be made here this morning. It is a declaration that Christ is Lord over every aspect of our life, and everything else is secondary. Our allegiances lie with Christ and Christ alone. And because of the promises that we made at our baptisms, that means the truth of our lives looks different from those who have not made the same proclamation. Christ the King Sunday is a relatively new thing when we compare it to the totality of Christian history. This festival day was created in 1925 by Pope Pius XI. The Feast of Christ the King was a response to growing secularism and nationalism in Europe and around the world in the aftermath of World War I. The world economy was sluggish. People were divided. Different factions of people were jockeying for power around the world. And the situation was bleak. Yet the Feast of Christ the King was a reminder to the truth Christ proclaimed through Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. You say that I'm king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to truth. Everyone who belongs to truth listens to my voice. This morning we point to Christ's lordship over all things. And we proclaim that we will live as a witness to his lordship, pointing to a time when Christ's kingdom will be established to its fullest. Many of you have heard me say over and over again that we have other gods in our lives, gods with a lowercase g. And these gods are constantly competing for our attention and our loyalty, prestige, power, money, and our status within the community. We are faced with these lowercase g gods and our Lord. And time and time again, like Pilate, we don't see the truth that is standing right in front of us. We don't recognize the one we confess to be our Lord. And we choose the safety and the comfort of the other gods that, offer, that do not offer us the same truth as Christ does. On this day when we proclaim Christ to be Lord over everything, the truth is that in our rejection of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the unmerited grace of God is still ours, given, us to, the full, given to us to its fullest by the one who came to proclaim truth and was rejected. Thanks be to God.